when you say what's something I want to achieve outside of work you know things like that I mean give back find ways where I can use maybe my network or my experience or my contacts or whatever to provide help what also happened I, I brought my daughter with me on that trip and she's mixed because I'm Swedish and her mother is Vietnamese so she looks a little bit different than them and they didn't have anything. They had broken toys in this pagoda and still they gave those as gifts to her, right? So that kindness, ah, it was just so eye-opening. And part of my, my motivations on weekends as well when I think about, you know, long-term is that how can I help give back? Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Eric Johnson is a partner at Antler Vietnam, where he oversees Antler's Vietnam operations based out of Ho Chi Minh City. He started his career in London Square Mile as an investment banker on the trading floor. After a trip to Vietnam in 2008, he fell in love with the country and permanently moved there in 2011. He spent his first year in Vietnam in Vietnam Investments Group in the private equity space and later became an entrepreneur himself as a co-founder or CEO with five different ventures. Hi, Eric. So nice to meet you and speak with you today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. Hi, Amanda. Likewise, super excited to be here. I think the first question I really try to ask people when I get to speak with them on the podcast is a little bit about their childhood and background. And I know you're probably sitting there in Vietnam, but you grew up in, in Europe and I think in Sweden. What was your childhood like for you? What did it look like? Sweden was great from an experience of just growing up. Very safe, clean, good education good kind of healthcare in general. So it was quite a nice. Grew up in the south of Sweden in a pretty small town. No, it was really good in general. I think very different from Asia now. And there maybe have been a few learnings growing up in Sweden that I've carried over to Vietnam. But in general, very safe environment to grow up in. Yeah, it was great. What was young Eric into? What kinds of careers were you looking into in the future, if any came to mind? And what kind of hobbies did you have? Oh, you know what? I wanted to be a <laughs> chef when I was a kid. So I even had my own recipe collection and I helped my mom a lot in the kitchen. I love that. I love cooking and baking. And so that is good now that sometimes you need to do that. But uh, ice hockey was a big thing for me as well. Ice hockey is uh, one of the biggest sports in Sweden. So I played ice hockey a lot. I'm also from a motorsports family. So my father competed in world championships in go-karts. We've always had dirt bikes and go-karts and race cars at home. So I did a lot of that as well growing up and also continue to doing that sometimes on the weekends here in Vietnam, actually. Very cool. So I'm guessing your childhood is filled with a lot of risk-taking and adrenaline, I guess, exposure to it. <laughs> yeah, I guess, because I, I kept mentioning safe as a keyword for Sweden to grow up, but it's all relative, right? But uh, it's calculated risk, I guess. Makes sense. And so when you were heading off to university or finishing up university, what did you plan on doing afterwards? I'm sure maybe this time you didn't want to be a chef anymore. <laughs> I did an international high school thing called International Baccalaureate. It was quite early days in Sweden when they came out. So there was only available in a few cities in Sweden at that time. So for me to do it, I had to move away from home when I was 16. And that was all in English. 
back in those days in Sweden as well, we were already quite multi-linguists uh, in a sense. So uh, when I grew up, we started learning English at 10 and a third language at 13. And I chose German. So I think everyone in Sweden has a fairly decent level of English. So I did high school all in English. And then I thought, well, I might as well continue on that track. So that's why I chose London to study. And in high school as well, I loved microeconomics as a subject. So I chose economics and finance in London to pursue. So that was essentially the step over to university. Right. And then when you went to university, you wanted to be in economics or finance after. And, and that's what you did. You got to work in London and you became an investment banker. You know what? Yeah. Back in those days, all I wanted to do was become an investment banker, get my BlackBerry, walk around in a suit in London Square Mile and be uh, what I thought was a big shot. Um, you know, <laughs> reality is very, very different. There's a lot of PowerPoints and Excelling and not a lot of, you know, flashing. It was uh, super interesting. So, yeah, that was quite straight curve path in the beginning, just investment banking, finance. So it was more glamorous outside when you get out of the office compared to the inside. <laughs> I guess the few times we got to get out of the office, it was pretty much 24-7 at, at many, especially in the early days, right? Uh, sometimes I even slept under the desk, had a change of clothes, went down to the gym quickly to change. I loved it. It was amazing. It was intellectually challenging. The team was great. Uh, we did super interesting things. I got to travel around Europe as well. So yeah, I really loved it. So how many years were you doing sort of that job or that kind of work where you're traveling, working a lot of long hours in that field? I did that for about four years in London before I moved to Vietnam. And what was the experience like getting to, you know, travel a lot at a young age, working really crazy long hours? I don't know if, what you expected coming out of university, but how was that experience for you over those four years? It was amazing. I think the hours, it's obviously challenging, but I think when you're young, it doesn't affect you as much as when you get older, right? These days, I mean, I turned 40 in February. My biggest wish is these days is to get a great night's sleep. And if I can do that, I am happy. Back in those days, it didn't really matter. And the excitement of just working on high pressure environment big sums of money involved in any deal you do, right? And then again, quick pace. There was a lot of focus on this Excel modeling, especially with an M&A in private equity. Uh, and I loved it. I really did. And then, yeah, you get to travel. The only thing you see really is uh, hotel rooms and, and inside of boardrooms and meeting rooms. But it was super, super exciting. I loved every minute of it. From what I've seen, you went to Vietnam for a month and you fell in love with the country. That was, I think, in 2008. What brought you to Vietnam for that one month? So in second year of university, I met my wife who is now my ex-wife, unfortunately, uh, still great friends, but she's Vietnamese. So we started dating and then uh, it got more and more serious. And I think she thought, well, um, Eric, I'm going to go back to Vietnam at some point. If that's not on your radar at all, uh, this might be a waste of time. So she brought me here in 2008, took me up and down the country and said, hey, this is Vietnam. Uh, what do you think? And I loved it. From the moment I stepped out of the airport in, in Ho Chi Minh City, I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So yeah, so that was the catalyst to put that seed in my head in the, for the future for a potential move to Vietnam, which then happened in, in 2011. So what about it made you so excited? I mean, some people say I love it from the first trip, but it's a different thing to say I loved it from the moment I stepped into the airport. <laughs> yeah, it's just that I love hot weather. Growing up in Sweden, it's a cold country. I think I'm more of a, a hot weather type person. I also love the hustle and bustle of emerging markets. If I didn't end up in Vietnam, I would probably end up in another kind of frontier emerging market. When you start meeting people here, there's this aura of just positivity and nothing is impossible. And it doesn't matter where we start from, it only matter how fast we grow. Sweden is super nice in so many different ways, but the growth opportunities, I think, are fewer. And I think maybe my personality fits more in this part of the world than, than back in Sweden. So the small town I grew up in, most of the people I went to primary school, middle school with are still living there. 
some of them, you know, they buy their parents' house, live on the same streets they grew up on. For me, I like the hustle bustle of a, of a big city like Ho Chi Minh City. So I think that was the main allure. And, and it hasn't changed in the last 12 years I've been here. I still love it. And then you permanently moved to Vietnam in 2011. How did you set up for the move? And what was your plan by the time that you'd moved there? I was very lucky. My partner at the time, so she helped pave the way. So she went back six months earlier than me, actually. Uh, and A, prepared the family that there was going to be uh, a guy coming along. Uh, her mother knew on her mother's side, but her father didn't, which I think is pretty normal here as well. And she also arranged an apartment, a motorbike and everything. So I was very lucky. Not everyone who comes to Vietnam has the same luck, right? So that was one. Another thing I did, I try to... So when you move from even country to country within Europe is a big step, but even different continents, right? You try to keep at least one variable constant. So as everything, environment, all that changed, I kept my job kind of constant. So I moved over from private equity in London to private equity in Vietnam. So there was something to anchor when everything else was moving around me, everything changing, there was something I could anchor that on. Um, yeah, so I joined a fund, uh, I think two months into to my um, my permanent move here uh, called Vietnam Investments Group. And the two months before that, I did hardcore Vietnamese studying to acclimatize myself as quick as possible. When was the first time you learned Vietnamese? Like, I guess, casually than the, the time that you learned it seriously? I didn't study anything in London before moving to Vietnam. I only started coming to Vietnam. And I went straight into studying almost as soon as I hit the ground running. So I took two intensive courses back to back. And then I followed up that with a personal tutor uh, and just, yeah. And I still take classes 12 years in, you know, because there's all wow. these different levels, right? So once we read conversational level, that took me nine months, which I thought was a big hurdle, right? Uh, even to be understood a little bit or something or whatever, that was a big hurdle. But then you move on to kind of business Vietnamese and start diving into history and idioms and things like that. So there's always a new level to preach, I think. From day one, I was hell-bent on, on trying to get fluent as, as fast as possible. So nine months in, you were conversational. What did conversational look like? Conversational looked like basic conversation. So at least you could get understood if you want to pay for something or directions to a cab driver or, you know, that sort of level. And it sounds like a long time. And I felt it was a long time as well. But the tones are so important. So I see many expats coming here and they... They have the best intentions to try to learn, but that tonal element in the Vietnamese language is so hard to perfect. So even if you say the right words, but you use the wrong tones, no one will understand you. So I think that's the one of the causes for that first big hurdle to even have a basic conversation with someone on ordering something or giving directions or telling directions. I'm guessing for Vietnamese, it's also a mix of knowing the tone and the right accent. Is that also another hurdle? Yeah, uh, the accents are fairly similar across the country, apart from some regions that are a little bit hard to understand. The uh, central region has accents that, are, that even Southerners and Northerners have hard time understanding. But I think my accent is also a little bit of a Frankenstein. I studied with Southern teachers. So I think anyone who comes to Vietnam get asked the questions, do you want to study Northern Vietnamese or Southern Vietnamese? And then you ask, I don't know, what's the difference? And they usually give the reference to say, well, Northern Vietnamese is like British English, it's the proper way. And then Southern Vietnamese is more like American English, you know, has a little bit of a twang to it. Well, I thought, well, if I'm going to live in the South, I'm going to learn Southern Vietnamese. But then my ex-wife's family was from the North, so I use... I think I have a mix of both. Uh, so <laughs> Northerners usually tell me, wow, you speak Southerns. And Southerners tell me, wow, you speak Northern. Okay, very cool. <laughs> and very, very fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take to be fluent again in Vietnamese? 
completely fluent, like to the level that maybe what you're using today in your show in Shark Tank. Yeah, I don't know. I, am I am I fluent? Can I discuss any topic in Vietnamese with anyone? Can I go into talk about microbiology with a <laughs> professor? Uh, no. Uh, so what's the level of fluency here? But can I be on TV? Uh, yes. Can I do interviews and things like that in Vietnamese? Yes. Can I work with founders here in my day-to-day job in Vietnamese? Yeah. So I guess that level of fluency is reached already. But yeah, there's always new levels to breach, I guess. It's such a beautiful language. It really is. It's so nuanced. And I'm personally very, very interested in in Vietnamese and how you break it down, the history and the root words and things like that. I think it's so much more colorful than English or Swedish or, or German. And that took you 12 years. People would think that maybe after 12 years, it's complete fluency because you get to use it every day. But I think that's the reality of language. If you're not native, it's always a continuous process. And there's always something to learn when you find a new level, right? <laughs> it's like you unlock a new yeah, vocabulary. <laughs> yeah, but it's, sometimes it's hard. I faced also issues in Ho Chi Minh City, right? So, so many people want to practice their English. So when I was starting learning and starting speaking, I spoke in Vietnamese to them and they responded in English to me. So it was these ridiculous conversations where, you know, the Western guy spoke Vietnamese and the Vietnamese person spoke English and we just had a conversation. And yeah, so many people speak English here now. What I also found when you go up north to Hanoi, your people speak English and they love it when anyone speaks Vietnamese. So here in Ho Chi Minh, I operate in Vietnamese and day to day. And sometimes you get a great reaction. Well, wow, you speak Vietnamese. And sometimes they don't. Yeah, it's normal. Every time I go to Hanoi, people are amazed and they remember you and they want to engage in conversation. They take pride in someone learning their language and they're so happy about it. So anyone who studies Vietnamese to get a, that like an ego boost or, or motivation boost, travel up north and speak and you'll get uh, a lot of gratification. I think you speak six languages, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. I think it's a European thing, right? We are exposed to a lot of languages early on. And two of those languages are, are a little bit for free. Norwegian and, and Danish uh, and Swedish are quite close languages, so it's not hard to pick up. But the Vietnamese one has been by far <laughs> the hardest one. But maybe the most fascinating. <laughs> I, yeah, amazing. I have an eight-year-old daughter and I bought an encyclopedia for her in Vietnamese. And we're looking at pictures and she was looking at, you know, dinosaurs and, and learning. And I used it as, as a way to beef up my vocab, right? So I came to the section of geometry. And I was like, oh, I don't know the words for geometry yet. And then I started kind of digging into some of these words. And when you do that, for example, rectangle in Vietnamese is a word called hình chú nhập. And hình means shape, chú means a symbol or word, and then nhập. I, I wasn't sure what that meant. And I thought it came from Japanese. So Japan is how you say Japan in Vietnamese. And as I dug into it, it's so old Japan in old Japanese means the land of the rising sun. In that part, nyat means sun. The way you write sun in Chinese is a rectangle with a line across it. So rectangle in Vietnamese literally translates to this the symbol of the sign for sun. And those type of layers in a language is fascinating to me. I will never forget that meaning. And as when many Vietnamese speak to this, I didn't know that because they just learn the word and no one really thinks twice about it. But when you're an external person looking into the language, trying to dissect it, then you find these nuggets of amazing layers, right? I really love that. As someone who speaks six languages, would you say that you have a different personality in the different languages? Like maybe in Vietnamese, you have a different personality or do you think it's the same? I thought about that the other day as well, because Vietnamese is my third language and English is my second language, right? I was with my ex-wife for 14 years. And I thought about that the other day, right? How how weird is it to be 
married to someone and then you speak your second language to each other, right? Does that change anything? Has that affected communication at all? I don't know. For Swedish, for sure. I think I am 16-year-old Eric, pre-London move, when I speak Swedish. Maybe it's also a little bit of a time capsule. Maybe Swedish Swedish language has evolved and I don't know the latest slang anymore. English, I think, is such an easy language. I don't even have to think about it. Vietnamese, you have to use a lot of brain power to speak it, right? And listen, hopefully, I keep the same type of personality. I don't know. Maybe I should ask my team if they think so. How about life in Vietnam as an expat? I think being an expat is a totally different lifestyle, especially having, well, with you, having moved from Sweden and you lived in London, now you're in Vietnam. What have been the ups and downs of life in Vietnam? 99% of my experience here has been completely amazing. Vietnamese are so open to anything that comes from a, from a non-Vietnamese setting. They're super curious. The older generation of Vietnamese, the people that are now in their 50s and 60s, back in the days, there was a national exam they took and the 500 top students, they get to, they got full, full ride scholarships to the USSR. So that generation speak Russian and Vietnamese, but not very much English. So sometimes I rock up to weddings and I get seated by a table with nine other gentlemen in their 60s. And when they understand I can speak Vietnamese, they light up and they bring over their wives. And they are so curious about what I think about the Vietnamese food. How do I think about life in Vietnam? I mean, you get so much positive attention in whatever you do, right? So I think life as an expert in Vietnam is there's no better place. But it also, I guess it's, it's what you make of it as well. I sometimes meet expats that have been here longer than I have, and they still complain about the traffic or other things, right? So I think you need to have some level of openness as well to adapt to the culture. And once you do, then life becomes less frustrating. Learning the language is one. When you can operate and you can talk to anyone, it's so amazing. That gives you also a glimpse into the life of others in Vietnam. So I was in a grab car. Last year, and I remember when Grab launched here in Vietnam, the map was a, bit, a little bit wonky and some drivers, maybe they took a little bit of time to get to the destination, to pick you up and whatever else. There was a lot of expats complaining about that. Usually what happens when I get into a Grab car, I confirm the address in Vietnamese just to confirm I have the right guy. And then one of two things happen. They either said, yes, that's correct. And then we don't speak for the rest of the journey. Or they get really excited that, wow, you speak Vietnamese. And they start asking me questions. And I used that as well to practice my own Vietnamese. So with this person in particular, this was at night. I was going home from work and I asked him. So I started talking and asked him, so when did you start driving Grab? He's like, oh, I just started two months ago. I was like, oh, wow. Why did you start driving? And then he told me a story about how his wife recently had a stroke. Because of that, she was at home, in bed, incapacitated to work. And they had two young daughters that need to be schooled and fed. And he said this with a big smile on his face in a way that I am so happy and lucky that Grab is here so at night I can earn extra income as opposed to why did this happen to me or complaining about it. So that was so refreshing as well. And it gives you a sense of humility as well that back in Sweden, back in Europe, we complain about the small things. But here, people have this massive wave of optimism that I, I admire so much. I was also in a Grab car the other day and the guy, uh, we were going in one of the most famous streets here in Ho Chi Minh City, and he didn't know it. I was like, wow, you didn't know, don't know that street? How come? He's like, I arrived from Hanoi yesterday. I have no idea about any of the streets in Ho Chi Minh City. And he's driving Grab already. And I was like, okay, no worries. Let's figure it out, right? I'll show the way. Don't worry, right? So you cannot have these kind of 
preconceived ideas that everything works the way it works in the US or in Europe or wherever else, right? Or in Singapore. And once you understand those stories, then it becomes less frustrating. Then instead, you you have this sense of, I want to help you. Let's do it together. Let's figure it out, right? So, and I think the language part is a big part of that as well, because if he wouldn't be able to communicate that and you didn't know, then you would be super frustrated having a grab driver who doesn't know any of the streets, right? Yes, because he would never think about it. Like, he's a grab driver. Maybe he has driven here before. It's like 99% probably he has. But then if you never asked him because you can't understand him like in Vietnamese, then yeah, you'd probably be sitting there fuming. <laughs> Maybe report to exactly, Grab yeah. because this guy <laughs> is so right. slow. But because, you know, Vietnamese, you realize, oh, it's his first day. I mean, it's already impressive. He can take you to as far as where you got. Yeah, it changes exactly. the perspective totally. Yeah. It does, doesn't it? Right? Even a few stories like that that you experience yourself, that makes you so much more open-minded to other people's stories. If something arrives late, maybe there's something I don't know about at all that happened, right? So it changes your perspective a little bit. So I think you become a little bit more... Uh, not maybe humble is not the right word, but understanding of different people's situations. And yeah, and then you remember as well, wow, I'm very lucky in the way I was brought up and my situation. And yeah, so I think it's been really good. There's always downsides as well to life anywhere. I think any country have their own specific issues that they're grappling with, right? So here in Vietnam, yeah, 90%, 90% has been amazing. There's only been one time where I was actually thinking, what am I doing here? The third e-commerce business I launched here in Vietnam was also the one we shut down. We gave it two years. After two years, we had not found that kind of hawkistic growth. In the process of shutting it down, there was a rogue employee that wanted to be paid. She had two days of annual leave. She wanted to be paid in cash. I said, you can take those in lieu, but I cannot pay because I need to conserve cash to pay to my suppliers. She ended up going rogue and emailing all my suppliers, pictures of my daughter who was I think a year and a half at the time, my home address and telling them, Eric is tricking you all, go get after him. He's going to take your money and run away. So that spawned waves of gangsters coming after me, coming to my office, sitting outside my house, sending me pictures of knives and machetes, cut off body parts and say, which finger do you want us to cut you off, cut off when we get you and things like that. For that company, we brought in over a million dollars in foreign direct investment from foreign investors. I employed 50 people over two years, gave them jobs. And then you get after me by using my daughter. That was definitely the lowest point so far. It also taught me Facebook. People can get a lot of, uh, a lot of information on Facebook. So even though I wasn't, I wasn't friends with this particular employee on Facebook, it was quite easy to find information like that. So after that, I also learned to be a little bit more secretive about personal life and things like that, and how much I share. But I had to end up sitting down with these gangsters. And it was like almost in a movie. They wore black t-shirts, and all of them had like full sleeve tattoos with dragons and snakes and gold chains. And they were there just to try to intimidate me. I sat down with them and said, guys, you have the wrong information. You know, <laughs> So uh, we are not running away. I'm here. And after that, it, it calmed down. But yeah, there was a couple of days in that process where I'm thinking, what am I doing here? Maybe I go back to Europe. Yeah, I think... If I were in that position, I'd really wonder like how I could maybe get out of it. Like it's just a crazy situation that I would never be able to think about. Yeah, it was a lot of pressure and it's hard to sleep those days. But then again, you reset, you sort it out, and then the fundamental reasons for being here never changed. I mean, I think this is the best place to be. It's such an amazing growth story. The country itself is one of the five fastest growing countries in the world in the last 30 years. Life here is amazing. And none of those factors changed just because there was someone with bad intentions doing something, right? So yeah, all good. 
I'm curious, like you got into that situation because you were conserving cash for the suppliers, but it was the suppliers who came after you. So after you discussed it with them, they understood that, you know, that was just a rogue employee. But actually that happened because I wanted to give you guys cash. Exactly. Yeah. It was a rogue employee that got upset and spread false information. And that false information was never verified with me. So they just jumped the gun, unfortunately. And, you know, if I do something wrong and people come after me, that's fine. But when they use family members, they were also camping outside my wife's office. They were camping outside my my in-law's house. So I felt I brought shame to the whole family. That's probably why you thought I should just go back to Europe. It's like, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) What have I done? Yeah. But uh, no, all good. It was all sorted out. So that's good. And then uh, onwards and upwards. Right. Very scary, though, like the amount of information people can get. I'm sure you didn't share that with them at all, especially the addresses. Yeah. No, but yeah, you can find out easily. But then what else happened? So two weeks after that, uh, and after all that happened, we had shut down the company. Um, the founder here in Vietnam of uh, Highlands Coffee, the biggest coffee chain, he took me out for lunch. And he said, Eric, you feel down in the dumps now, but it's all good, you know, because now you're investable. Now you're interesting. Now you have gone to full circle. You've had a few successes and also a failure and you're still here, right? Now you know uh, what to avoid. Now you know how to operate smarter. So whatever you're going to do next, you're going to do it better, faster, stronger. And that was also a key moment. Like, yeah. So now when I interview founders, I love to dig into failures and what they learn from that. Because if they have a big failure in the, in the baggage, that's not a kill pill at all. In fact, I think it's a token of they've gone through something difficult and they want to get back on the horse. So whatever I can do to help them, I will. Is that the biggest lesson that you sort of had across your career as a founder and as an operator, you know, before your VC role? Yeah, I think so. Getting to that validation of product market fit as quick as possible without burning cash or wasting time. So the big thing I look back of for that failure was could have got to the same conclusion that this model doesn't work at this time in Vietnam faster, taking less money from investors, losing less money for investors, losing uh, less time. That's the biggest regret. So I encourage founders to come to a quick validation or non-validation that there's a hard no, this doesn't work. So we can move on to something that will work as quick as possible. Yeah. When I invest in founders here, even week on week progress and traction is something we look at very closely to get to very, very quick validation. Yeah, I think yeah, that's probably the biggest takeaway from that. I think it's very hard to have to fail and shut down something. And then added to that, you had that whole very scary ordeal. How long did it take to sort of get over that whole ordeal of like failing and everything else? Like, how did you get over the emotional toll of that? I think it took at least a couple of months, to be honest. Yeah, as a founder, you put all your efforts into what you're building. So you're professionally attached, you're emotionally attached, right? I didn't take a salary for those two years as well. And I had a great spouse who supported and, you know, I like, was lucky to have savings and things like that. So I was also the, the one who, who lost the most. I had the most money in the company, but all that stuff, I think is paid tuition. It didn't feel like that at the time, but it really was, but it took a good couple of months to get back on your feet and regain a little bit of confidence, I guess, to say it's okay to fail. Let's go back and do something else. Yeah. Is it harder to be an operator and a founder in Vietnam as an expat? What are the hidden advantages or disadvantages? I think it's hard. Yeah. When I came to Vietnam, a lot of expats got senior roles in companies just based on the fact that they had international experience. I think that has changed a lot over the last decade, over the last 12 years. So you really have to 
be value add. You really have to know exactly what your core traits are that you add value to the company, to the ecosystem. Not just the fact that you can speak perfect English or that you have a degree from a European school or whatever. Because I keep telling expat entrepreneurs that as well, there's always going to be a Vietnamese person that can do something quicker, faster, and cheaper than you, right? So uh, what is your key USP here? And that's getting harder and harder. And also now in 2011, when I came there was not as many homecomers, so to say, the sea turtles that had, uh, you know, graduated from in, or worked in the U.S. And, or in Europe and now coming home. Now there's a lot, right? So you have now also Vietnamese that have international experience and Ivy League degrees and whatever else. They speak the language. They know the culture. So it's getting harder and harder. So one misconception about Vietnam is that it's, it's not very competitive. If there's a model you've seen in, the Euro, in Europe or the U.S. that is not here yet, we can just launch it and it's going to be successful. Uh-uh, not at all. It's super competitive. Um, so you got to know exactly what your four traits are and, and, and what your key factor for success are. And 80% is always going to be execution. Anyone can have a good idea, but the way you execute is key. And execution is hard. It really is, especially if you're an expat. Since you speak Vietnamese, and you also operate in Vietnamese, speak to Vietnamese founders, perhaps there are also a lot that maybe speak, in, I mean, Vietnamese more comfortably than English. So what has your sort of experience with the skill of speaking Vietnamese, what impact did it have in your role today as like a VC in Vietnam? Does it allow you to speak with more people, understand business models better? Like what is the real advantage of speaking the language? I think even before my VC role, it opened a lot of doors, right? So I was invited to help build Adiroy for Ving Group back in the days. And I probably would not have been able to do that if I didn't speak Vietnamese. Vung, the chairman of Vingroup, he speaks Russian, very little English. So every conversation with him was always in Vietnamese. We built that company to 1,300 staff, and I was the only non-Vietnamese among the 1,300. There were a few Vietnamese, but only one Western person, and that was me. And then I have gotten invitations from other similar profiles, also billionaires to join their respective businesses and help them grow. Again, all those conversations are always in Vietnamese. So I think there's been a layer of these doors opening, these opportunities coming up presented to me because of the fact that I can speak Vietnamese. Uh, in my role as a VC, I think I spent 80% of my time coaching founders. So we uh, call ourselves a day zero investor. So we help from idea stage to incorporation to growing a lot of those conversations, yeah, especially the tech founders, sometimes they're a little bit introverted and they feel it's easier to share something in Vietnamese. So then we do that, right? So that helps me getting more information where their head is at, what the roadmap looks like, uh, how they're feeling emotionally, what bottlenecks they might be facing at the moment, even if they have family issues which might affect their motivation at the time or whatever else. So yeah, I think there's nothing but positives by speaking the language, yeah. And what is it like Having built multiple ventures in Vietnam, like, are there any things that have changed over the course of building from Zillora up until your last business venture prior to Antler? I'm sure there have been a lot of changes in Vietnam over those years, but what has been the most significant or surprising change that you saw as a builder, as an operator? I think first venture I did in 2012 is e-commerce, right? So I had investors flying in from Hong Kong, from Europe. Uh, some of them just felt like they wasn't sure if there was actually a business on the ground. So am I getting tricked? So I remember I had three gentlemen from Switzerland flying in 
and they were all coming, rocking up in three-piece suits, right? Super proper. And I was there in Converse and, you know, jeans with holes in them. And and they were like, we really want to see your warehouse. And I was like, okay, uh, it's going to be 45 minutes drive because it's in Yabe, south of Ho Chi Minh City. And then on the way back, we might hit rush hour traffic. They're like, we don't care. We want to see your warehouse. So I took them down there to the warehouse. They were literally there for five minutes. Okay, there's a warehouse. Great, let's go back. Like there was that concept of, if we send money to a company in Vietnam, will they run away with it, right? So there was that massive factor of we don't know exactly what is there. So that kind of hesitancy and then tentativeness by investors. And then on the way back, it was so funny. I still remember it. we hit rush hour traffic. We were in, the, in this crossing and there was a sea of bikes. Even for me, I was like, wow, this is a lot of bikes. And then it started <laughs> raining. Because of the rain, there was like a power cut. So we're sitting there in the rain and a sea of bikes and it was all dark. And these guys were there filming. Like, this is crazy. And I was like, yeah, it is crazy. And also, this is the environment we deliver 95% of our orders the next day. So you have to roll with the punches, right? And that was a little bit of a, oh, like, wow, really? You know? Um, How do you do so next you day to, in this to... traffic? Like, is that what they were exactly. saying? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that sense of tentativeness against Vietnam as an investment destination, I think, has changed a lot. Now, every week, I get calls from family offices in Europe ex-VC fund managers in, in, the, in the US that have seen early startup ecosystems in India, in Tel Aviv, Israel. And they all think now Vietnam is the next big ecosystem to come to life and to thrive. And they all want to know how can we plant a foot in the ground? How can we tap into that? 10 years ago, 12 years ago, that was definitely not the case. There was a lot of questions about, well, how is the political environment here? Is it safe for us as an investor? How do we get money out? And that has changed a lot. Even the fact of setting up a business, first e-commerce company we did, it took us a year and a half to even get the license to operate as a foreknown entity. And now it's more of a standard process. So there's been a lot of things happening. So I think that has been the biggest factor in the last decade. What's the most thrilling part about building in Vietnam across all of the different businesses that you've operated for and built, and even maybe the nonprofits? What has been the most exciting element? I think I love operations. So that's why I love just building e-commerce businesses because before you can you start turning on the big marketing machine, you need to be able to, you can, you can operate, you can deliver. In the early days, we would give a package to VM Post and for two months, we didn't know if that package was delivered or not, if the customer received it, there was no reporting. So I started rolling out my own delivery feed in both Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City. The order distribution in Vietnam in the years I've worked in e-commerce is usually be roughly half of the orders going to Ho Chi Minh City, 25% Hanoi, and then 25% the rest of the country. So if you have your own delivery guys in Ho Chi Minh and Hanoi, you cover 75% of your orders. So we started doing that. But then you think, okay, back in those days as well, it was 80, 90% of all the orders were paid for in cash on delivery. So if someone cancels the order whilst we're processing in the warehouse or whilst it's on the road, we have no recourse. We lose money by, you know, this is cost involved for us. So how do we do that? How do we get around that? Also, if a driver goes out and have 35 packages to deliver during a day, he might have uh, the amount of cash in his pocket at the end of that day might be equivalent to six months salary or nine months salary, right? There might be a good take home. How do we make sure he doesn't disappear? So we recruited drivers just on the back of referrals internally. So we had actually one driver disappearing and his cousin had referred him and his cousin was working in my development team. So we had this bond signed that he actually had to foot the bill for his cousin. And then you figured out in the family, but we need to recoup this money. Then as we moved to Hanoi, we didn't have an office already. So we set up a logistics hub in Hanoi and we didn't have existing employees there to refer. 
So I went up there with my rock planner from Hochimi City. We scoped out some locations. And then it was over a weekend, I remember, and my rock planner was Catholic. So he said, hey, Eric, I'm going to go around the corner to check out the church. I'm going to go on uh, to visit the church on Sunday. And I told him, okay, why don't you uh, ask the minister there if he can refer someone in the kind of congregation to help us deliver orders here. So the first seven delivery drivers we had in Hanoi was from the church next door. And we never had any issues. So that's the part I love about being You have to think a little bit differently. That's the part I love, right? How can you be smarter? How can you adapt to the environment and still operate successfully? So I think that's part of the things I love about Vietnam. There's always a way. There's a, if there's a will, there's a way, and we can just figure it out. Yeah, I really love that. And even in in my business today, when working with with young founders, early stage companies, how can we just growth hack? How can we do things outside the box where we can get early validation or just uh, traction in non-conventional ways and try and try again? That is really, really exciting. And that's part of uh, why I love operating here. I think the takeaway I have is that if you're building in Vietnam, if you haven't found a way, you're just not creative enough yet. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Exactly. So you're also on Shark Tank, which I found very fascinating. I don't speak any Vietnamese and there were no subtitles. So I tried to watch a few episodes. You look very witty on camera, but I don't really know if that's the case because I can't understand anything. But what's the experience like? Are you very extroverted? Is that why you were willing to go on Shark Tank? No. The exact opposite, to be honest. I am very introverted. I try to hide it very well. I was very close to rejecting the offer to go on Shark Tank because uh, I really don't like to be in the spotlight. I haven't watched a single episode because I really don't like seeing myself. And if I or do, hearing I'm yourself. Be, <laughs> yeah, or hearing myself, exactly. I'm going to be very judgmental in my own Vietnamese. And why did I pronounce that word like that? But it was just the fact, there was one thing essentially that convinced me that I thought it was pretty cool to be the first non-Vietnamese person on Vietnamese Shark Tank. That's something no one can take away from me. And I thought, okay, it's going to be super scary. Again, speaking in my third language on TV, assessing these founders. Yeah, it was very stressful, very scary, but I'm, I'm glad I did it. I think it was a great experience. And it taught me a lot about the operations and what happens behind the scenes in these type of productions, right? So I thought it was really interesting. What surprised you about being a VC on Shark Tank as compared to being a VC at Antler? Ah, the founders I meet through Antler are more specified on tech, very specific tech solutions, AI, edtech, SaaS. On Shark Tank, it's a show, right? You got to remember as well, it's a show. So the founders that rock up on Shark Tank, they are from all these very different industries, Right. I remember the last pitch we saw on Shark Tank. I'm not even sure it aired. The last pitch I witnessed there, I read the notes and I honestly thought it was a typo. It was like, uh, how much equity the founder wants to sell? And it said 100%. I was like, this must be only 10%. This can't be 100%. No, uh, it was founder rocking up. He had started a Vietnamese restaurant in Korea and he wanted to sell it. <laughs> <laughs> we got a little bit upset with him. We were like, why would we want to buy your restaurant and operate it in Korea, right? I don't see those type of founders in my antler day-to-day work. So yeah, there was also other businesses like yeah, there was a girl who got investment for, I think, from Shark uh, Human uh, Sour Meat Production. I'm a tech investor. We invest in companies that hopefully can reach serviceable, obtainable market of at least $100 million. And for that, you usually need to be tech-enabled. So out of the, I think I saw 24 pitches, far from all of them, from my perspective, were investable both in a personal capacity or on, on behalf of Antler. 
because most of them, I think, are not really tech. I'm trying to think about Shark Tank in the US. I can't tell what the businesses are when I watch it on on like Shark Tank Vietnam, so I couldn't make an opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of consumer business as well. And if you get on Shark Tank as a founder, it's a great way to get attention for your business. So a lot of those founders as well, there are have built consumer businesses. Yeah. And then you can argue, are they really there for the investment or, or are marketing. they there for the PR? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. But uh, now it's interesting. I think, you know, it was also hard being the new guy in one of the chairs and culture as well. If they're older, older Vietnamese people, I felt it was hard for me to 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 speak sometimes, right? They were speaking over each other. I didn't want to butt in because right. I, I was the new guy and I was younger. So yeah, it was, it was, it was also sometimes a little bit tricky, but yeah, it was a pretty cool experience overall. Yeah. And funny thing as well, you forget how big reach TV has, right? So we're so indoctrined with kind of TikTok and mobile web and, and you know, things like that. But TV is still such a powerful medium. So even after the first episode aired, I wasn't sure, you know, how many views it was going to get or whatever else. And I was in Dalat, in this mountain town here in Vietnam, with a group of of hikers, and we were going to go hiking. And we stop in this small restaurant, hole in the wall. And as soon as we walk in, there was a table next to us, who were like, "Oh, Shark Eric! Oh my God!" You know, they recognize me, and none of the other trekkers knew that I've been Shark Tank because I didn't tell them. So they're like, "What's going on?" I was like, "Oh, nothing." So I was really surprised <laughs> that how the reach of the show. And then I checked with the production team; they estimate that. Across the live, so it's prime time on Sunday nights at 8 p.m. Across the first airing and then YouTube and then re-airings and then TikTok and whatever else. They estimate they get about 20 million views per episode, which is quite... That's crazy. Yeah. That's insane distribution anyone would pay for. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And here I am, the introverted who almost almost turned it down. Who almost said no. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank goodness you're the first foreign investor. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm curious as well. So like your day-to-day is being a partner, I mean, a partner at Antler. So what is your day-to-day role usually? Like you said, it's mostly coaching, but what are the areas that you feel like founders in Vietnam really need coaching with the most? Yeah, it's a great question. I think if you look at the Singapore ecosystem, for example, there's a lot of founders there that have done something before, started a company before. Here in Vietnam, we have so much talent, but... In many cases, they just haven't started a company before, start business before, so they don't don't know what is market standard. For example, if you have an advisor that want that you want to onboard, how much equity do you give them? If you haven't done that before, then you, maybe five percent sounds like a normal amount, right? But actually, it should be 05 percent, you know. So those things, I think, you know, there's a baseline that we try to help. Even how you structure your deck, how you structure the storytelling, how you present the problem you're solving, how you present the team, things like that. So there's a lot of things we do there and that zero founders in the US or Europe or Singapore might not have to do, right? That's one. We also do a lot of fundraising help for them to raise funds after we have invested. And again, what do investors expect in your data room? Here's a checklist. You need to have this, this, and that. Yeah, so there's a lot of things like that we do. We help them with and then it's also the kind of subject matter stuff. So if they build a, something very specifically in a specific vertical, if I don't have that expertise myself, I have a team of 16 advisors around me. Two other sharks actually uh, are in that roster. You know, there we have medical doctors, you have crypto experts, you have AI experts, 
So if there are specific subject matter skills they need or introductions, I can also tap into my, my advisor network. So yeah, so I spent, yeah, 80% of my calendar is probably filled with coaching sessions, working with uh, the 25 portfolio companies we have now built up in the, what is it, 18 months we've been on the ground here. What made you even join Antler as a partner? I mean, I don't think you were ever a VC before, right? What motivated you to, to take the offer? You know what? Back in the days when I joined Zalora, uh, it was a rocket internet business, right? I felt in the really early days, everyone was working on both ventures at the same time. And then someone said, okay, you have to choose sides. Either you go Lazada or you go Zalora. And I just felt all the nice people that I liked went on to the Zalora side. So I did that too. And the CEO of Antler, Magnus uh, Greenland, yeah, we worked together back in 2012, 2014. So he was a big factor for me joining. The other factor was also I felt if we had launched Antler in Vietnam five years ago, I thought maybe it would have been a little bit too early. I think the ecosystem is now to the point where our model is perfect. So there are a lot of money looking to find homes in Vietnamese startups, but we need more startups in the ecosystem. And that's where we come in. So we run these programs every six months where we invite founders to build with us. So right now we have the fourth cohort running. We're in week two. We have 75 founders here in the office that are brainstorming ideas and connecting with each other to form these ventures that hopefully come week 10, we'll invest in as many as possible. And they will then go out into the ecosystem and and continue growing. So because I think now we've had big tech companies like Grab, like Lazada, like Shopee that have spawned these amazing entrepreneurs or founders, potential founders that have been inside a big tech company and see how you operate and now say, I want to do that myself. So I think now is the exact right time for us as Antler to do this model here in Vietnam. That's great. I think with the developing ecosystem too, it's very good to have people as early as you guys to help support the people who need it the most. Because otherwise, I don't know if they'd make it to the other side of the bridge and continue building their venture. That's right. Yeah. And they don't have to know how to build a company. They just have to know exactly their expertise and have their passion. And then everything else, incorporation of your company, go to market strategy. We help with that, right? Fundraising. Also, one of the big USPs of the of the program is that you can meet other your co-founder in the program. So if you have, if you're a commercial profile and you have this great idea that you want to pursue, you need to team up with someone who can actually build the app or build a platform that you want to launch, right? And you also have technical founders that have these amazing full stack skills, but they don't have a strong opinion of, of what to do with it. So they also need to be matched up with someone uh, who is saying, hey, let's build this. I know the great market opportunity. Let's do it, right? So, so that's one. We have a lot of teams being found in the program that they meet each other and they do great things. Yeah, after after they get investment. Apart from like why Antler makes sense in Vietnam now and apart from Magnus inviting you, what else made you want to be a partner? Because I think jumping into VC is totally different too, right? And with the responsibility of being a partner as well. Yeah, I think another reason was I love early stage in the kind of startup life cycle. So the founders I work with, we're still looking for that product market fit. Will this work? We're not sure. Let's try. Once you get to Series A, Series B, Series C, it's all about operations and you know fine-tuning. In the early days, it's all crazy, willy-nilly. Everything can happen. And I love that. So I feel like in my role at Antler, I get whole position with that, the early days excitement, 
but I don't, I'm not the one lying awake at night worrying if I can meet payroll next month, you know? So I get, I think I get the best of both worlds because I've been on that side as well. And it's not fun. You know, it's a marathon. You're done with it already. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like, I feel like, yeah, I've been, I've been there enough times to now want to be on the other side of the table and help those guys. Right. And girls. What's the most interesting part about being a partner or a BC now? Are there really interesting business models? Is that what is most fun for you? Or is it meeting the people? Or is it discovering something new? What is the most exciting or interesting thing about being a VC now? Especially at this stage of the ecosystem. Yeah, at this stage of the ecosystem, I think, so what really I think is amazing about Vietnam is that there's so many talents here that perhaps would fly below the radar if they didn't have a program like ours. I was interviewing this young founder Last year, he was part of our program and he, um, this amazing full stack developer, I think he was 24 years old at the time. And I was like, okay, what are you working on at the moment? And he said, well, you know, I am building, uh, my father has some heart problems. So I built this cardiovascular monitoring system for him. I was like, wow, can you show me? He was like, yeah, sure. And he showed me the demo and it was mind blowing. And I was like, this is crazy. This is so good. He was like, you really think it's good? So he wasn't even aware of how good he, his own thing that, that he built was. And not a founder that rolled out of Stanford or Harvard or, you know, Wycom or whatever, right? So someone amazingly talented that also super introverted. So, you know, teaching him presentation skills, storytelling and stuff, you know, we helped a lot with. That really motivates me, finding those talents that may not have the same setup as founders in the Western world the same network, the same contacts, the same kind of upbringing even, but, you know, have these amazing abilities to build something. And whatever I can do to help them, you know, that's where we come in, right? So that's what really motivates me, what I think is amazing, right? And we see those talents coming through the program and it's it's really, really inspiring. And yeah, and the ideas they come up with as well, I mean, it's super interesting. We had a team, we just, actually, they were just in the office this morning. They came out of our second program a team of four super talented Vietnamese people that came up with their own proprietary formula to create bioplastics from bio waste. And they found bio waste almost for free here in Vietnam. And they now have a formula to produce bioplastics that can degrade within one month, you know, just from their own, their own experiments. Amazing. And also a product that is good for the world, can be produced in Vietnam, sold to all over European and international markets all over, right? And yeah, so lucky we found them, right? So yeah, those those type of examples, like I, I want to find more and more and more of those. These are so exciting. I feel like the health-related one, I mean, it's already so complex to build a health product. And then there he is, like not knowing at all, like how good what he made was. Like as long as it works to a certain degree, I think it's already impressive if he did it alone. Yeah. And then I think the concept of having something that you build in Vietnam that you can sell to the world is also very, very exciting. Absolutely. I think there are lots of businesses that want to go regional and now this one can go global, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And one thing, so when I interview founders as well, I think if there's one thing that the Vietnamese founders can improve on overall is thinking a little bit bigger, dare to think a little bit bigger. Really? Right? So when I ask them, hey, what's the problem you want to solve? They usually talk about something very niche, like, you know, oh, this widget right here is selling very quickly on Shopee at the moment. So I want to create a company to produce it so I can make make money from that. I was like, okay, what happens in three months when this widget is out of fashion and they people are switching to something else to buy? 
can we think about a bigger problem? What could potentially scale outside of Vietnam, right? And Antler, we have now offices in 25 different countries. We have 3,000 founders in our ecosystem that are building different things. We have 500 plus advisors globally. So I want to be that catalyst for Vietnamese founders to then go regionally and global. And But the first stepping stone to that is them also daring to build something that hopefully can scale beyond the borders of Vietnam. Do you think there is a language barrier in terms of finding good Vietnamese founders? Or do you think the Vietnamese founders that you guys meet that are the most interesting typically speak English? Or do you feel like there's still lots of diamonds in the rough? Because I, I don't know too much about Vietnam, so I'm very curious what the landscape looks like. Yeah, when we launched the program here in Vietnam, we were prepping to do it bilingually. But we felt, we discovered pretty early, we didn't need to. So even the most introverted Founders that sometimes on the tech side that don't use English that much, even them have enough basic Vietnamese to follow. Yeah, sometimes they're more comfortable in the coaching sessions to converse in Vietnamese and we can do that. But in general, I think the English level is is good enough. So I don't think the language is a massive, uh, much of a barrier. I think it's more the way they present the company and the way they storytell and the way they they interact with the uh, with these international investors. And, and again, that's where we can come in and help out and and just kind of polish a little bit because the raw talent is really there. It really is. You know, so whichever way we can do it. I mean, first court we ran, the founder I worked with the most in terms of fixing her slides and, you know, just wrapping it all together was also the one that got the highest score in investment committee and was the the bright shining star. So if all sometimes all is needed is just helping, you know, giving a little bit of framework and guidance. And then off they go. Amazing, right? So yeah, so that's where I guess our big part of my role is. I feel like in this conversation, there are so many heartwarming stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's yeah, it's such a great country to operate in. I mean, um, yeah. And also what we found as well. So Singapore has been there. We started entering Singapore. 2017 it was founded. 2018 we had our first cohort there. And Singapore is this massive kind of Southeast Asian hub, right? So they get amazing founders. And when we look at the stats, Vietnam is not far off. I remember one metric I looked at, average work experience of founders in Antwerp program in Singapore is 12 years. And I thought, wow, what's going to happen in Vietnam? Maybe we have six, seven years of work experience on average because it's such a it's a very young demographic here, right? First program we ran, we had 11 years of work experience. The last one we run now is 12 years of work experience. 28% of the founders have exited a company in the past now. Third of them have a PhD, a master's degree, or an MBA. You know, we have some really, really strong founders in Vietnam. And again, the tech talent here is great. This program we're running now, we usually look at founders either from a technical perspective or commercial perspective. 52% of our founders now in the program are from a tech background. So actually the builders and 48% are commercial background. And many of the other entry locations, they would wish to have those more tech founders. But here in Vietnam, so many tech talents, which is a massive, massive tenet for building great tech companies. If you were a founder again, okay, let's not assume you're going to go through all the pain. But if you could pick any problem or industry, what do you think you'd be building in? Let's say you just arrived in Vietnam today. If I arrived in Vietnam today, I would team up with um, one of the AI experts we have. I would look at how to use ChatGPT as a main engine, overlay that with specific prompts and maybe proprietary data, and go deep into fintech or insurtech. I think that's such an interesting industry. I think there's so much power in that. Yeah, I think that would be something I would look at. We see a lot of, uh, yeah, we see a lot of founders now in the current program focusing on AI. 
think ChatGPT has made it very approachable to the common person, how AI can help them in the daily business. But ChatGPTs are broad, so you have to guide it to be very deep. And people who can control that and do that, I think, can build very scalable businesses very quickly. So yeah, if I were founder, again, I would probably do that. Outside of like your work hours, what do you usually do? Hobbies or things you like to do? Play golf. I try to play golf every weekend. Love it. Golf courses here in Vietnam are amazing. Yeah, it's the most frustrating game in the world. So every weekend you look forward to a golf run and then, and then you end up frustrated with the score. But uh, I think it's a great way to, to relax. I, yeah, sometimes I bake and cook. I think that's nice as well. It's a little bit therapeutical. I've nerded out in the last six months on red Italian wines. So sometimes I pick up a nice bottle and share it with some friends. Yeah, or hit the gym. I love uh, gymming and, and swimming. What is like your go-to kind of dish to cook or go-to sort of cuisine to cook? Is it Swedish? Is it Vietnamese? <laughs> Unfortunately, it's neither. I, I, my go-to is probably Italian. Yeah. I spent some time in Tuscany a couple of times. I love Italian food. I was uh, My roommate in London was Italian as well. Love Italian food. So uh, yeah, go-to probably Italian dish. I can cook a few Vietnamese dishes. The hardest one is probably one called Bancun. I love it. It's uh, usually a thing you have for breakfast. Oh, I've heard of that before. I think Farina oh, it's amazing. was the one who recommended that to me. Now at least I have a record oh, really? again. Yes, so oh, I will really try. double note that down for a future visit to a Vietnamese restaurant or when I visit Vietnam in the future. Please do. Yeah, it's probably my favorite dish. But also it's very hard to do because you have to make this, this pancake out of essentially rice. It's oh. very soft pancake and then fill it with minced meat and mushrooms and things like that and to get that pancake thin enough is hard but uh, yeah that's one one Vietnamese dish I've, I've tried to cook and it was okay yeah what about the go-to Italian dish probably some sort of a pasta I did a pasta the other night with uh, some salmon and uh, mustard cream sauce that turned out pretty nice yeah something like that a nice pasta I'm a big pasta guy when I grew up playing ice hockey in Sweden you need to carb load before a big oh, game, right? Okay. And pasta was always the go-to. So yeah, I, I'm a big pasta guy. And I guess to wrap up, I want to ask you one question I ask everybody I speak to for the podcast, and that is outside of work, what is one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? For the timeline, that doesn't have to be this week, this month, this year, or even in the next five years. But what is top of mind when I ask you that question and really outside of work? Yeah, top of mind for that is... Um, so Vietnam has given me so much. I've been so amazingly well-treated here. So I've been also thinking in ways, how can I give back, right? So one way I started giving back was co-founding this thing called Happy Eyes. So long story short, 2017, I went with a friend to a pagoda in Vietnam, outside of Ho Chi Minh, close to the coast in Bung Tao. And we were there and there were about 100 orphans in that pagoda that were raised by the, the nuns and the monks there. And we we're sitting around and playing with them. And then we looked at each other and said, hey, isn't it weird that none of these kids wear glasses? Shouldn't statistically like 30 or 40% of them wear glasses? And we thought maybe they're not allowed to use them outside of the of this classroom. And we peeked in. There was no glasses sitting there. We asked. It turns out none of them had been tested, their eyesight. And these were all orphans between essentially 0 to 17. So we thought, oh, maybe that's something we can help with. So we did that. And we started this thing called Happy Eyes, and uh, we have now been partnered with a few big partners. So now we can offer essentially eye screening and give glasses to to those in need for about fifteen dollars a head. 
Um, so we went back out and we did that. And it was very eye-opening. So we had all this international equipment, how we tested the ice. And for the smaller kids that had not learned to read yet, we had used symbols. And I remember there was one little girl and we showed her symbols. Oh, can you see this symbol? And it was a symbol of a horse. She was like, yes, that's a horse. Okay, great. What about this one? And it's like, oh, it's a duck. Yes. What about this one? And the next symbol was a symbol of a, of a birthday cake. And she had never seen a birthday cake. So she said, I can see it, but I don't know what it is. And I was like, wow, okay. Again, remind me of how lucky I've been in my upbringing and how other people might be as lucky. So when you say, what's something I want to achieve outside of work? You know, things like that. I mean, give back. Find ways where I can use maybe my network or my experience or my contacts or whatever to provide help. What also happened, I, I brought my daughter with me on that trip and... She's mixed because I'm Swedish and her mother is Vietnamese. So she looks a little bit different than them. And they didn't have anything. They had broken toys in this pagoda and still they gave those as gifts to her. Right. So that kindness, ah, it was just so eye-opening. And part of my, my motivations on weekends as well, when I think about, you know, long-term is that how can I help give back? And there's so many different ways that you can do it. Right. Yeah. So that's top of mind. Funny thing about that as well, we also tested the ice of the security guard in the pagoda, and he had the worst eyesight of all of them. So I'm thinking, how can he work as a security oh guard? He was almost blind as a bat. <laughs> yeah. So we tested him as well and gave him glasses. And he, yeah, it was really thick ones. But uh, yeah, no, super, super, super great experience. And and some, I think that's probably one of the experiences I like talked about the most, you know, as opposed to other ventures and things like that. You know, Happy Ice is, uh, yeah, I learned so much working with these his kids and trying to get them tested. For most of these kids, right, they would have never known that they see things differently from others, right? Exactly. If you never test your eyesight, and then maybe you don't have confidence because you think you're not being able to see the, the whiteboard in the classroom is because you're not smart enough, whatever. But it could be a simple fact that you, you, you don't see it, right? So, yeah. And then also what we thought was really important here was I give, even if you are a five-year-old girl who happened to be an orphan, you should be able to choose a color of glasses that make you feel like a girl. So we wanted to make sure that they could choose any color they wanted, any shape they wanted, as opposed to standard issue, army style, everyone gets the same thing, right? So, yeah, like everybody gets some glasses as long as they're in the right. Yeah. You know, great. Yeah, so that was a big part as well. So we did we did that. Yeah, and it's so much fun. We also did, did a leprosy colony outside of Ho Chi Minh City for older people that suffer from leprosy and... Many of them have been bedbound for years and years and years. And then I walk in and I'm not sure the last, uh, you know, Western person they had seen was, but they all assumed I was French, maybe because French occupation 300 oh, years ago. Yes. So I walk in and they go, bonjour. <laughs> yeah, that was also, that was also interesting. And again, very, you know, they're amazing. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, working with those kind of people and, and, and trying, trying to do, you know, just a, a little bit. I think it's uh, is amazing. Yeah. So long way to answer your question. I think that's top of mind outside of work, how I can do more of that. Well, thank you so much for sharing, Eric. And thank you for joining me today. I can't say that I just learned a lot alone. I feel like I feel fulfilled just hearing what you have been able to see and do in Vietnam. And I feel like it's, I'm just really excited to see what else you do, what else happens in Vietnam and to get to understand it more. So thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. Oh, super cool. Thank you so much for having me. It was uh, yeah, amazing talking to you today.